Hello, my name is Tom Wilkinson and welcome to the Thinking in English podcast, a podcast for intermediate to advanced level English learners. Sanam Montero is a poet, activist, political science graduate, youth worker, former intern for the United Nations Women and a friend of mine who once let me sleep on her sofa in Brussels. I invited Sanam onto Thinking in English today to discuss her experiences of both learning and teaching English. We had an amazing conversation on topics including her work with refugees and asylum seekers, why creative writing is an awesome tool to develop and improve your English skills, and how being a non-native English speaker actually can make your English more interesting. And of course, we discussed Sanam's language learning journey. I hope you all really enjoy listening to this episode. You can find the full transcript of the episode on the blog, thinkinginenglish.blog. I'll put a link in the description. Um, there is a vocabulary list. Uh, I'm not going to re read it today, but instead you can read it over at the uh, blog as well. And check out my Instagram page, Thinking in English podcast like, follow, leave a rating, subscribe wherever you are listening right now. And yeah, let's get straight into our conversation with Sanam. Hi Sanam, how are you? I'm good, and you? I'm great, thank you. I'm great. Um, so I know who you are, but could you introduce yourself to my audience, to my listeners? Yeah, um, I'm Sana Montero. Uh, I met Tom at uni. We went to uni together. Um, so I studied um, political science, but I've always done a lot of things on the side of my studies. And one of them is drawing and writing, and especially with people. Um, and so I'm Currently, a lot of my time is being taken doing some freelance work with young refugees in the UK. I'm based in London um, and uh, I work with an artist collective called Compass Collective. And I think that's why I'm here today. <laughs> that's one of the reasons. But uh, I was also I'm really interested in, in you teaching English. Um, but also, as my listeners can probably hear from your accent, you might not be a native English speaker. So uh, can you tell everyone your, your, your linguistic background? What, what languages did you grow up speaking and grow up around? Yeah, so basically, so my name is, is Sanam, which is an Iranian name, and my family name is Montero, which is a Portuguese name. Um, so that already gives you an idea of my family background. Um, and I was raised and I hold a Belgian passport um, Belgium is a bilingual country, so we speak French on one side and Dutch, like the Netherlands, on the other side, um, which also means that as any country that's a bit uh, messed up with languages, um, English is around a lot to kind of help us communicate with each other when we haven't learned right. our, our second national mother tongue. Um, and if you add to the mix, um, like, you know, the diversity of languages in the migrant family, um, I'd say I've been raised mainly with French, but with a lot of English around to kind of like help communicate with, you know, different people. 
um, in the family or in the friendship groups or even in your like daily life. Um, and then to add again to the mix, I wasn't raised fully in Belgium. Um, my mum uh, travelled around for her job, so I was raised partly in Southeast Asia, um, where again you kind of pick up the local language, but whenever it gets, I guess, too complicated, you switch to English. So um, I was in French schools abroad, but English was very much part of trying to, you know, figure out life and make do. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my background. Yeah, so I guess just in summary, half Portuguese, half Iranian, born and raised in Belgium. You also studied in Switzerland, right? And in the UK. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. I studied in Switzerland in the French side. Um, but again, Switzerland, another country that is divided between languages. So um, English is used quite a lot. And then I did my uh, postgrad in the UK, in London, fully in English quite proud that I achieved that. It was kind of like something when I was a kid that I was like, I can never study in English, it would be impossible. And yeah, I did it, so. Yeah, I think a lot of people have the same thoughts that, you know, when you're young, there's no way that you can work or study in a foreign language, um, mm. but there are thousands, millions of people every year who manage it. So it is an attainable goal. Um, so you mentioned, at the beginning that you're currently working with an artist collective called Compass Collective. Um, what do they do? What do you do? Um, yeah, so Compass Collective, as you can hear, is a, is a collective. So the idea is to bring artists together to collaborate on projects and to just kind of have a pool of resources for when you do a specific project, you know who to call, basically. Um, I'm mostly on the creative writing side and using your creative creativity in writing to, you know, I don't know, tell the story you want to tell. And if that story is just about learning English, then, you know, we can also do that. Um, so that's one of the things that I do. So we have an a regular English class. Um, and within that English class, we have a beginners group that is taught by an ESOL teacher. And I used to be teaching assistant on that group. And then we noticed that some of them were ready for things that are a bit, a bit more creative to kind of use this English that they're learning at, at school. Um, and that's where I come in uh, with my intermediate class using different creative techniques to just like, um, I don't know, make English a bit more enjoyable and fun and playful. Um, and all, all of our students come from a, and background of seeking sanctuary in the UK. So seeking sanctuary means that you've come to the UK um, seeking asylum, um, and then they have different status. Some of them have uh, now status in the UK as refugees. Um, some others don't, there's a whole spectrum, um, but we don't discriminate. So um, we work with young people, um, usually from the age of 16 uh, up to the age of 25. Um, but it can be older or younger, it depends on the projects really. Um, so yeah, that's that's Compass and me, what I do currently for Compass in a very short nutshell. Yeah, I think teaching creative writing is a really important thing for all English learners to sort of learn and study, but especially for children, right? Because uh, creative writing is using a lot of different interrelated and interconnected skills um, and it's 
it's a way of outputting some English that right, right, you've learned and studied. Because a lot of people, including myself, when I'm studying Japanese and Chinese, it's, I look at a textbook and I write down some words and I will never use those words. And then mm-hmm. I'll forget them. And creative writing is a great way to practice new grammar, practice new skills, practice new vocabulary, and also have fun while you're, while you're doing it, I think. Yeah, I think it really enhances your confidence as well, because you realize that with very simple tools, um, little tricks that you were not taught because you weren't born in the English language, you can just make your English more a certain way. And what I love to focus on is joy and humor. And it's so difficult to have a personality in another language. And I don't know, maybe because I like being a funny person. Um, I, I like finding my sense of humor in every language that I speak. And I think it's really difficult when you don't understand how like sarcasm is constructed in English and how do you, you know, how do you play around, I don't know, like famous sayings that you just twist around to make them a bit funny or when's the right time in a conversation to use you know a stop or an exclamation and you know these things to make it to make it a bit more like spicy basically so I like teaching that to my students when to break the grammar rules but because it's funny and it's actually allowed as part of British humor yeah this this question's a little bit different from what I was planning on asking you but are there any differences that you noticed when you moved from the French world to the English world in terms of humour and comedy and writing? Yeah, it's, well, first of all, for, for example, if we want to describe um, a feeling that you have or the weather or an experience, we're not going to use the same idioms, which means that in English, because I don't know the right one, I'm going to make up an image and people are going to be like, what is this image? <laughs> what are you talking about? But you make up new metaphors because you're trying to make that cultural translation in your head. Um, and then you notice that people don't use the same, the same, uh, I don't know, the same animals or the same objects to make those idioms or metaphors. And so you've gone completely the wrong way. You know, you're like, it's, a, it's all right, I'll stick with it. Um, so for example, um, saying someone is really thin. I always say people are really thin as a toothpick, but mm. apparently here is as thin as a twig, you know? Yeah, but thin as a twig or thin as a stick, yeah. There's like stuff like this that you need to learn. And then there's also the way that you construct your humor. I think in French, I'm very rude and very cynical, but here it's a much more polite way of being sarcastic. And you need to, you need to adapt to that. And a lot of it is actually I find it really interesting. It's using um, intensifier with strong, low intensifier with strong adjectives. Oh, it was quite distressing. You right. know, using this type of things, so quite as an intensifier and distressing is a strong adjective um, to describe like not being happy or being stressed. Um, and if you use uh, kind of the wrong intensifier with the wrong strong adjective, you can really, um, give a sense that you're making fun of the thing you're talking about or that the experience was absolutely absurd and didn't make any sense uh, or things like that where which like it's something that you take some time to learn in the UK you know how to have this very polite sarcasm of course but I think you making your own metaphors and making these kinds of mistakes which aren't really mistakes is also a really useful tool for creative writing because 
just reusing the same old cliches that English speakers use doesn't make interesting writing, doesn't make interesting storytelling, um, because you're just using images that someone else has made up 100 years ago. So when you make these new metaphors, I think it's what George Orwell said is, you know, never use a, a phrase that you're used to seeing in print because someone else has thought of it already. So mm -hmm. maybe it's one of the unique advantages of being a non-native English speaker is you can come up with more interesting phrases. That's what I always tell my students. I always tell them, first of all, don't be shy with me. Make all the mistakes because I'm coming here to teach you today and I'm making mistakes. Um, so, you know, we, we can't speak if we don't accept that we're going to mess it up at some point, that my pronunciation is going to go AWOL, that I'm going to put the wrong intonation in my sentence, that it's going to sound weird, that I'm going to start the sentence in one tense and finish it in another because I realize halfway through that it's not working out. Um, and that's perfectly fine. And um, and I also tell them that it's about finding their own voice in English. It's not about speaking like the Queen, because let's just be honest, like very few of us manage to reach that no point. No one does. <laughs> There's some people, they're really truly geniuses and you listen to them and you're like, how were you not born in the UK? How have you just, you know, soaked in that language so well? I've been learning it for so many years and I still have my accent and I still make grammatical mistakes. And I think that's what makes your personality. So you just have to, you know, roll with it. And I tell, yeah, that's why I say find your personality. And um, I really don't want you guys to be, I, I hear so many of, in my other job, I see, I hear a lot of people saying things like, oh, I wish, you know, I hadn't been so ashamed of my accent when I was in high school. Oh, I wish this and this and that, you know, especially like people from a black British background or a South Asian British background who've kind of just completely have been here since they were born and completely adapted their, their accent to fit in the very harsh um, school system. Um, and then you kind of lose touch with your culture a bit. So that's why I tell my students, I say, I really don't want us to lose touch to, you know, yeah. keep that link with your culture and however much you want to have it. And remember, you've got a power which is called code switching. And if you don't want your personality to come out, you can always do that, but just don't delete it forever. Keep it somewhere, you know, yeah, in I your brain, in your heart. I think it's, it's really, really important for people not to forget their accents because that is your story. It tells you where, you, and everyone's accent is different. It's kind of like a fingerprint. It's something unique, unique to you. Um, but it's something that even British people have to deal with, right? I lost a lot of my accent when I went to university because I came from a working class English background and my classmates didn't and they used different words to me. So I made my English a lot more standard. And then I moved to Japan and just hung around with Americans. Um, and that always ruins your accent if you hang around with Americans. So, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But so can you... Tell, tell us some of the challenges of teaching English and writing to refugees and asylum seekers. Um, because for me, most of my students in the past and now have been uh, from regular family backgrounds, school children uh, in Japan or at the moment professional adults. So what are some of the challenges of teaching people from slightly more diverse and complicated backgrounds? Well, 
I would say, first of all, that it's, I've also taught to like adults and um, actually like uh, uh, English, people from the UK, adults from the UK wanted to learn French, so I've done the other way around. Um, so, I, and I also work in schools in my other job, uh, not in language, but more in, um, yeah, prevention workshops, things like this. So I've had different experiences of, of the, you know, education chain and where you can be in there. Um, and I have to say that teaching refugees and asylum seekers is, has been the most joyful experience um, because it's usually students who really want to be here, uh, who are highly motivated and, um, and are really grateful for the interaction that you're offering them. So it's often a conversation more than a lesson. I feel like I am friends with all of them. Um, mm. And um, I really, I really, really care about their language journey. And so do they. It's not a one-way, it's not a, like a one-way conversation where you have the, the teacher who really wants something to happen and the students might be at a different pace in their personal journey, which is fine. I was a very, very slow learner. I annoyed my teachers so much because I just didn't want to focus on my English. Um, it has to come in, in its own time. But what's great with working with young people with a back, background of seeking sanctuary in the UK is that they really want to be here and they really want to learn as fast as possible. Um, and I think the challenges come actually come more not from the language barrier because we have lots of fun, we find ways of communicating and we're all really eager to learn from each other. Um, I think the difficulty come from the institutions around us, um, not making it easy um, for them to really progress on that journey. Um, and for example, being moved schools without notice, being moved housing to another city um, with one week notice, all of these type of stuff that happen when the person in charge of you is the British Home Office um, and I have very little consideration for your life and what you're trying to build in the UK and your story and so that's been the most challenging actually it's having people who cannot attend regularly who have to attend um, their classes from their phone from their data and you have to make sure that they have enough data to join the whole session um, you're trying to talk about writing similes and metaphors but all they want to talk about is the fact that they've been moved housing for the third time in one month um, you know and they don't have their own room and there's no quiet space for them to join the lesson and I think that's that's what is the most challenging um, but in terms of working with that specific population of young people it's really a blast I love it so much. Yeah it's it sounds very different from uh, my experiences of, of teaching English and uh, helping people learn English but it's something I think in the future I'd love to uh, get involved with so maybe when I'm back in the UK I'll, I'll uh, hit you up and hit Compass Collective up. Um, 100%. So your experience of teaching English has it has your experience of learning English impacted your experience of teaching English? Oh definitely first of all because compared to the other teacher who's uh, I mentioned an ESOL teacher and um, he is from the UK himself. Um, I actually know what it is to sit through these English classes um, yes. and not understand 
what is going on um, and have to learn all of these things, these irregular verbs by heart for next week and all of these things where you're just like, make it make sense. It does. I don't understand this song, you know, right. how it works. Has the, um, has the ESOL teacher ever learned another language? Yeah, he actually speaks Chinese fluently and okay. used to teach English in China. Right, because that, um, yeah. is, that is useful. If you speak another language, you kind of start to understand some of the problems. Uh, but I always tell people that, actually, when I learned to be an English teacher, my course, the first thing they tell, told me was the best English teacher is a non-native English teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you, you understand what might seem logical for everyone else, but that you really have to explain and find a way, find a logical way of explaining it. Um, and even if you speak another language, if you've like learned Spanish, there's still stuff in the English language that you might not realize is, is actually harder to get than you think. Um, so it's definitely, that's definitely impacted the way I teach. And then um, I've been very privileged to learn English in many different backgrounds from uh, yeah, so one of my high school actually had um, how do you, a pilot program, had a pilot program for um, the, the French English, the te- well, English, English teaching in the French education system. Okay. And it was to do with learning through culture, not learning through textbooks. So we sat and watched a lot of movies and that's how they try and get us into English, um, which they decided not to to continue because they didn't think the pilot worked really well but for me that worked really well because before that I was struggling with English I could not sit in front of a textbook Um, and then I also partly went to a bilingual school at some point in my journey which actually forced me to read a lot of English literature uh, because I had to do um, my GCSE and my A-levels in English literature mm. as part of that program. So, and that was really intense because I joined the year before GC, the year of the GCSE. So I just had to get my head in the books. So like 15, and, 15 16 years old, I guess. Exa- exactly. Yeah. I joined at, at, at 16 and I just had one year to do my English literature a, a GCSE. Um, but I also realized how you just have to take those texts and you don't understand 50% of what's going on, but the more you read them, the, the, the percentage is just going to increase. So I actually use Shakespeare quite a lot with my students because, yeah, you're not going to understand 90% of that sentence, but there's a really interesting metaphor here. And I right. want us to look at yeah, I don't um, understand Shakespeare either. Don't worry. I like to challenge, basically. I think I only learned by being challenged in many different ways and so I want to use that I want to challenge people in but I also understand that people don't react like they don't react to challenges the same way so you have to basically you have to throw at people many different things until the right one hits Um, you know and so yeah and then like the last stage of my English development was actually going to Asia and living in Hong Kong and Singapore Um, and suddenly having access to an English that was much less, um, how to say, like you, it, it wasn't as, yeah, much less, yeah, perfect. Less, um, there was less stress of like speaking the proper way and having the proper grammar and the proper word because 
they themselves have mixed up English with their own local language. Um, and suddenly people are talking much, much more freely. And that's when I started actually speaking in English with people because before that I had a block, you know? Um, so that's why I say as a teacher as well, I try to really convey that, the feeling that you can just, you know, uh, fight anything your brain has and then we'll make sense of it together. You don't have to, to you know, as I was saying, speak like the queen. Um, and I think that's, that's, yeah, that's really influenced by how I learned because I just saw what are the things that unlocked my English when I was a really shy person and I took really long to actually learn English. Excellent. I, I think the key is being an active learner, right? Being engaged in what you are studying and how you're studying. Because I guess the reason they discontinued that movie program at the schools is, well, some students like yourself are really engaged in the movies and, and sort of listening intently to what they were hearing and maybe making notes of words they didn't know. A lot of students would just be sitting and watching a movie without thinking about it. And if they had subtitles, they would just be reading the subtitles and um, not learning any English. So the key is being active and engaged in your own language learning process. Because um, I did the same. I've watched so many Japanese movies over the last year and don't remember any of them because I would sit with a cup of tea and lie in bed watching a movie when I wasn't paying it and look at my phone half, half of the time. So I think the key is to make, remember you're studying, right? As well as having fun. Remember, you, you're supposed to be learning as well. So taking, you know, making it, keeping your brain active, keeping your brain engaged is important. Mm -hmm. So finally, I just want to talk about your language learning journey. So we've talked about you learning English. Do you speak any other languages or have you tried to learn any other languages? So I'm actually really bad at languages, as I mentioned several times. Um, I learned Portuguese for a while. Um, well, I learned Dutch for some time. My grades were not there. I stopped. I picked up Portuguese because it's much closer to French. So it was easier to get good grades without studying that much because um, you just try and Portuguese your French, like you use your French to speak Portuguese and, you know, it kind of passes. Um, but, you know, I, I get I got to a, a good a good level. Um, but then I think I'm the sort of brain where one language takes uh, like the like the main space in my brain yeah, me and too. everything else gets cancelled. Yes. Um, so my Portuguese currently is really inexistent and my Dutch is absolutely not there. Um, but it's interesting because when I put myself in context where there's a lot of Portuguese, I find my ear catching it like more and more. Um, I live with Italian flatmates and the more they speak Italian around me, the more my ear is catching on stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think that's great about having had the privilege to be raised with like lots of different languages around me. And once you know maybe one or two Latin languages, you can catch on other languages easier. And that's a really nice thing to be able to sort of somewhat understand what's going around you. Um, and then there's my mom's side with Farsi, which is the language that's spoke, uh, spoken in Iran. Um, and I'm actually really, really, really bad at Farsi. I only know um, hello, how are you? And all of the food that I like so I can order in the restaurant. Um, but it's a big aim of mine 
um, to actually focus on that language. Um, it's much more challenging because it doesn't have that transferable aspect that Latin languages have. Although compared to Arabic, Farsi has a lot of links with um, with the French language, for example, so an English language. Very, it's much easier to learn than Arabic. Uh, so it's a big goal of mine for the next like five years is to actually get some somewhat near fluent in Farsi, but who knows how long that's going to take. I've been on that journey for five years already and um, very, very slow as usual. So we'll see. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking to me today, Salam. Uh, do you, well, the final thing is for you to promote yourself and promote Compass Collective. So where can uh, the listeners of Thinking in English find you and Compass Collective? Sure. So you can find me, um, I guess the easier would be on Instagram. My handle is at Nam, so N-A-M, and then Nam again, but with three A's, so N-A-A-A-M, um, comes from my name, Sanam. And then you can find Compass Collective as well on Instagram. They're called Compass Collect. Um, they also have a website, compasscollect.com, uh, I think, or type Compass Collective on Google, uh, you'll find them. Um, and um, they're also on Facebook, uh, and they have lots of different things going on. They've got um, currently a fundraising for Refugee Week, which is going to be around the end of June. So they've got a fundraiser until then. Um, and they are doing, they are walking currently, what they're doing is they're walking um, the miles to Ukraine. So they're fundraising by doing lots of walking uh, and it has to come up to the distance between the UK and Ukraine to raise awareness um, around the situation in Ukraine. So, um, yeah. Amazing. And I'll put all of these links in the description of the podcast and also on the Thinking in English blog. Um, but yeah, thank, thank you. I hope everyone listening enjoyed that conversation with Sanam. We covered a lot of topics from teaching languages to refugees and asylum seekers, why creative writing is so important and useful, Sanam's struggling to learn English, and the differences between French and British humour. There were lots of different things that we checked out and covered. Do you like creative writing? What is something you learned or enjoyed in today's episode? And what kind of guests would you like to hear on Thinking in English in the future? Please let me know in the comments, uh, send me a message on Instagram, um, leave a reply on Spotify or on the Thinking in English blog. I really love hearing from you. And if you would like to be a guest or you know someone who would like to join me on the podcast, please let me know. I I'd love to interview people. Also, leave a rating, leave a like, a follow, wherever you are listening right now. We're getting closer and closer to 900 uh, likes on Spotify. Hopefully, we can get to 1,000 by the end of, oh, I'm going to say the end of June. Maybe that's optimistic. But hopefully, by the end of June, we can get to 1,000 likes. Yep, follow me on Instagram, of course. Uh, if you'd like to donate to me, you can do so on the Thinking in English blog. I'll leave a link in the description. Or maybe this week, go and donate to Compass Collective. And also, of course, go and follow Sanam everywhere. 
All of her links are in the description as well. So I hope everyone enjoyed and has a good week.